Heavenly Father, we know that your word, your law is good and we should be in disgrace for breaking it. But Lord, we ask that you would take away our disgrace once more and speak to us. Speak to us this morning and take away any veil that still guards our hearts to ignore your word that is hard towards your word. Instead, O Lord, we pray that your word may make an impact upon our hearts this morning despite the disgrace that we should have, because you have removed that disgrace in Jesus Christ and you speak lovingly to your children, words of wisdom to help us to grow further in your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this now is the second week that we are looking at the book of Amos together. And Amos was a prophet in the Old Testament during the time when the kingdom of Israel had been split in two Uh, God's people had come out of Egypt, they had gone into the promised land, they had eventually received a king, and that was King Saul, and then King David followed King Saul, and after King David, he had his son Solomon, and the kingdom was quite well united during the time of Solomon. After the death of Solomon, the kingdom actually split into two. You've got the kingdom in the north, and you've got the kingdom in the south. The kingdom of Israel is in the north, and the kingdom of Judah is in the south. And Amos comes during that, during one of the times of that kingdom, where the kingdom is being split into two, and speaks to the people of Israel, particularly to the people in the northern kingdom. He actually lived in the southern kingdom, but he's come up to the north to give his prophecy to the people of Israel. And so last week we looked at the first part of his prophecy. And that prophecy was against the foreign nations that surround the kingdoms of Israel, the kingdom of Israel and, of course, the kingdom of Judah. And so we saw again and again that God condemned the cruelty of the pagan nations. One after another, each of the pagan nations was condemned by God. And up to this point, the Israelites would have been cheering. They would have said, yes, this is wonderful to hear that the pagans are going to get it. They deserve what they get. Every time they oppress us, God notes it and he's going to make sure they get what they deserve. Now Amos in chapter 2 then turns to the sins of Judah. He has condemned the pagan nations, but what we're starting to look at today is his condemnation of the people of God. And firstly, he now turns in verse 4 of chapter 2 to Judah, and this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. That same phrase that has been used again and again against the pagan nations of for three sins of, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath is now used against Judah, the kingdom of Judah, which contains God's people. Now, why would God condemn his people? Well, he gives the reasons going on in verse 4. Verse 4, why is Judah condemned? Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods of their, their ancestors followed. I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. Why is God going to send fire on Judah? Because they've rejected his law, they've not kept his decrees, and they've actually been following false gods. God condemns the pagan nations, yes, but he's now condemning Judah for their sin in rejecting his word and for following false gods. 
Now, this is the point where Israel, which is where Amos has come to. Remember, Amos lived in Judah. He's come up to Israel to give his prophecy. He's now condemned all the pagan nations that surround Israel from the north, east, south, west. And now he's also condemned the uh, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, The people in the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, would be going, yes, Amos is our hero. Preach it, brother. Even the bad Israelites down south are going to get it. And then what does Amos say? Verse 6, this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Now Amos begins the major part of his prophecy. He's condemned six other nations. He's condemned the kingdom of Judah in the south. And now he's going to give his longest prophecy, which is actually against Israel itself. And why is he condemning Israel? What sins is he condemning in Israel? Well, we see them listed there in the following verses. In verse 6, we see that they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. The kingdom of Israel is guilty of slave trade, of selling people for even paltry amounts, a, a pair of sandals. Think how much a pair of shoes costs today. Even a very expensive pair of shoes. Is that worth someone's life? Could you sell someone for the cost of a pair of shoes? Imagine someone is so destitute, they have nothing to pay off their debts. And instead of giving them some grace and allowing them to go into bankruptcy, you sell them for a pair of shoes. That's what people were doing in Israel. And so God says, I will not hold back my wrath. There is injustice happening in Israel as well. Look with me at verse 7. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. They're not upholding with upholding justice in that land. And so God says he will send his wrath. And even there is sexual immorality happening in the land. Look at verse 7. It says, They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl. And so profane my holy name. There is sexual immorality happening in the land of Israel in a way that even pagans would look down upon. It may be incest that is being referred to here, or it may be taking advantage of maidservants that may be in the house. Father and son are both taking advantage of maidservants that are in the home. But it's a kind of sexual immorality that even the pagans would look down upon and say that is not right. But it was happening in the land of Israel amongst the people that are supposed to be the people of God. And there is false worship going on. We saw that in the land of Judah, but in verse 8 it says, They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. They're not worshipping God as they should. Instead, they're engaging in false worship. So both kingdoms of Israel, the people of God, are condemned. The kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And Amos's words here are a stern warning for today, stern warning for those who call themselves Christians but take advantage of the vulnerable as well. We looked last week at the people outside the church and how it is terrible when they take advantage of the vulnerable and we should tell them that what they're doing is wrong but Amos also in his longest prophecy 
as a reminder for those who are within the church that you cannot take advantage of the vulnerable and expect God will let it go. And this is something that Christendom, as it is known, needs to hear. Sadly, it needs to hear it. Why? Because injustice and abuse for financial gain, it happens outside the church, but we know it happens inside the church as well. We know that there are many pastors who are very wealthy. And why has that wealth come from? There's leaders of the church. It's come from trampling on the poor, from taking from the poor. They've built up large amounts of wealth, and it has come at injustice. We know that there is injustice within the church as well, from the people towards even the pastors. How many pastors through church history have been fired for no good reason? Churches have not been just towards those whom they're meant to submit to and respect and to love and care for. Yes, injustice happens outside the church, but it happens inside the church as well, inside churches where they acknowledge God as God. And sadly, sexual immorality, which is condemned here in the people in the land of Israel, is also outside the church, but also within churches that claim to worship God as God and Jesus as the Son of God. A man having his father's wife rocked the church in Corinth. We just looked at that chapter. It was read aloud before. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That is the same sin that is here condemned in verse 7. Father and son use the same girl. Happening in the early church, the church of Corinth. And sadly, we see that it happens within churches today as well. The Royal Commission here in Australia has revealed horrific abuses, sexual abuse, that has happened within what have been known as churches. Ones that claim to worship Jesus as Christ have been perpetrators of terrible sexual immorality. And worldwide... There's a Me Too movement that's been happening where women are coming out and proclaiming what has happened to them, letting the world know of the sexual abuse that they've experienced. It's now moved that there's a Church Too, there's a hashtag Church Too movement where women are coming out and saying what has been happening to them within churches. And even mega church pastors, pastors that have been held up as wonderful examples of church leadership, have been brought down by the fact that they have been committing acts of sexual immorality. Amos's words are a good warning for those who claim to be part of Christendom, who claim to be part of the people of God. And it's a good warning for us too here at Moines Baptist Church. It can happen all too easily. What is being proclaimed here against the people of God, can sneak into our church as well. What are warning signs that what was happening in the land of Israel, what is happening in the first two chapters of Amos, could be happening in our church? Well, it's when we enjoy condemning pagans for wickedness, but we're not interested in our own sin. That's what the Israelites were very pleased about, yes. And that's how Amos has structured his opening chapters, is because he knows that the people will let him have a a voice. If he condemns the other nations, then they'll listen to what he's got to say. And so he condemns them, condemns them, condemns them. And they would have been happy with him until he started to talk about their own abuses. 
And we can see that in our church. If we are simply interested in, preacher, give us sermons about the sexual immorality of pagans that are outside the church. Preacher, give us sermons about the corruption in politics, in the judicial system in this land. Give us sermons about the big businesses, the banks in Australia, and how terrible they are, how they grind into the poor. Tell us about them and how terrible they are. A preacher... Don't talk about us taking advantage of the poor, of not having a heart for those who need our help. Don't talk about that within our church, please. What's another warning sign? Well, it can be when we're interested in condemning the error of those in other churches outside this church. Isn't it interesting there how he settles in on Judah at the end of condemning all the pagans and I'm sure the Israelites would have been pleased about that. Go, Amos, tell us about Judah and how bad they are. That can sneak into our church as well. Tell us, preacher, about the errors of prosperity doctrine, of those out there who teach prosperity gospel. Tell us about that and how bad they are. Tell us about the errors of Roman Catholicism. Always be telling us about the cults and how terrible they are and their errors in their worship of Jesus Christ. Tell us about them. But don't you tell us about sexual immorality that we may be guilty of. Don't tell us to stop looking at pornography where we're using the same girls that thousands or millions of men are lusting after all around the world. Don't tell us about that. Tell us about the people outside the church and how terrible they are. Don't tell us about our sins and warn us, as Amos warned God's people so many years ago. Another way we can see this happening is when we at Ramoyne Baptist are more interested in pointing out the sins of one another. Not those outside the church, but each other. We go to people and say, do you realise how offensive you are towards me? Do you realise what terrible behaviour you have? But we never actually consider that we may be offensive in our words, that we may be terrible in our attitude and our behaviour. We consider ourselves to be completely perfect. There's no possibility that I could be wrong and you could be right. It's you who's the offensive one all the time. It's you who's the one who's doing the terrible things. And so we're more interested in looking at other people within the church even and condemning their behaviour than looking at our own selves and seeing if there's sin that we need to deal with. Amos's words are a good warning for us. It can sneak easily into our church what was happening in the land of Israel, what was happening in the land of Judah. King David himself is a good example. At a time when the land of Israel was doing really well, where the kingdom was united. What do most people know about King David? Well, they know about Goliath. If you talk about David for very long, what do people usually bring up? They bring up the fact that he was outraged, outraged. I read it this morning in my quiet time, it just co- coincided today. He was outraged that a man would take a lamb from somebody's flock, outraged and said, this man is a man of death, he must die for doing that. He must repay it fourfold. 
And yet he did not care about the fact that he had murdered another man to get his wife. More interested in what's going on outside his own house than interested in what's going on within his own house. And the sexual immorality and the murderous intent, murderous actions that were taking place there. If King David could fall in that way, we have to be vigilant here at Dremoyne Baptist. But what is the root reason then? If we're scared of this, if we heed Amos's warning here, what is the root problem that is going on in the church, of churches that claim to worship Jesus Christ? What is the root problem that leads them to commit these acts of sin? Well, it's because they've forgotten who God actually is. They're starting to think of God as one who is like a parent who sees no wrong in his child. These are the people of God, Judah, Israel, people of God. And God, God's like that parent at school who comes in to meet with the school and says, oh, no, 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 it could have been my Johnny that's responsible for this. Oh, no, 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 it's got to be the teachers. It's got to be the other kids in class. It's got to be the fact that he he didn't get his lunch properly that day. Or there's some factor involved that... It's not his fault. And people start to think that's the way that God looks at his people. Oh, no, 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 no. There's no fault in them. He will always ignore whatever's going on. He thinks the best of us. And so there's no problem with my Johnny. Or they start to think that God is a parent who will just bail them out all the time. Yes, God acknowledges that it's a naughty boy, but what's the damage? I'll pay for it. He just keeps on bailing them out and he'll never get angry with them. See, it's portrayed with rich parents where, oh yes, that's my black sheep of the family and they just keep on funding whatever goes on in that person's life. Daddy will bail me out. It'll be all right. I can do what I like. Boys will be boys. That's the attitude of some of the people of Israel here, I'm sure. God will just let it go. He'll bail me out. It'll be all right. They've forgotten who God is. Who is God? God is a parent who rounds on his children and says, I expected better. And that's what he does here in Amos. What does he say? In Amos chapter 9, he says, I destroyed the Amorite before them. Though he was tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks, I destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. Before the Israelites came into the land, the Amorites were living there, and God brought them down. He cut them off the top, cut them off the bottom, destroyed them completely. And the Israelites knew that. They should have known that the sin that they were committing was punished in the Amorites. The Amorites were punished for those sins as well. And so they should have known better. And like Israel, we should know better. We should know that God has the power to condemn those that sin against him. And he does cut down the wicked man. And we should know that. Also, Judah should have known better with the fact that they had his law. We see that in verse 4. It says, because they've rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. The people of Israel should have known better because it's not as though God hadn't told them what he expected, and we should be the same. God has given us his law, his book. We should know better. It's not as though we're flying ignorant in this world and have no idea what God expects. No, we do know what he expects. And Israel should have known better. Why? Because God had graciously redeemed them. 
We see that in verse 10, after it speaks about the Amorites, it then speaks about what he did for the Israelites. I brought you up out of Egypt, and I led you 40 years in the desert to give you the land of the Amorites. God had been so gracious to the people of Israel. They should have been obedient to him. They should have known better. Our God is a loving God, a gracious God, a kind God. How can we sin against him when he gave us this land? And it's the same for us. God has redeemed us, brought us out of sin, brought us out of slavery to Satan, brought us out from fearing our death, and he's continued to heap blessings upon us. We should know better than to sin against God. And fourthly, why should Israel have known better? They should have known that they had the law, because they had the law of God, they had They'd seen God's power in destroying wicked people. They'd been redeemed themselves. Fourthly, they'd been given great examples of how to live. Verse 11 says, I also raised up prophets from among your sons and Nazarites from among your young men. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord. God had sent prophets to them and he'd given them Nazarites. Nazarites are godly men who had taken a vow, consecrated themselves to God. And were examples of purity within the Israelite community. And God had motivated men to do this. They had these guys there, but instead of looking at these guys and prophets and Nazarites and going, they're godly examples of how I should live, they instead tried to cause those people to stumble. We see that in verse 12. But you made the Nazarites drink wine, which they'd taken a vow against, and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. They should have known better. They had examples of how to live. And we're the same Within the church, God has given us examples of how we are to live in purity. He does not leave us without examples. He gives us examples in the pages of the scriptures, but he also gives us examples within the church. You can look around in any local church, and God will have granted to the church examples of purity and godliness by which you can live, you can follow, you can imitate. But God is a parent who doesn't just wink at the sin of his children, saying boys will be boys. No, he rounds on his children when they sin. God is like a parent who caught his child eating stolen cookies and says, what have you done? I expected better of you. Don't act like I didn't tell you the rules in this house. I gave you my laws. I told you you're not supposed to eat cookies without permission. And don't act like you're strong enough to get around me. You've seen what I can do. You've seen me lift a television set. You've seen me swing an axe. You've seen me barge a blocked door open. Don't think that you can run and hide in your room and you'll get away with it. You know better than that to steal cookies and think that you can get away with it. And did you think I wouldn't know? Did you really think you could pull the wool over my eyes? You've seen the extent of my knowledge. You know that I know everything that goes on in this home. Did you really think you could take those cookies and think that I wouldn't notice? You know me better than that, and you should know better. And are you really going to steal food when I've been so gracious to you? I took you out to McDonald's for breakfast this morning. You had hot cakes, you had hash browns, and you had a chocolate milkshake. And when we get home, what's the first thing you're doing? You're sticking your hand in that cookie jar. I've been so good to you. How could you do this to me? And it's not like you don't have good examples around here. Look at your sister. Is she taking cookies? 
No, you've got an example of purity right here in the home and you're ignoring that example and still taking the cookies? I expect better than this from you. And so if that is what a parent does in the home and our God is the best of all parents, all the parents of this world are simply little shadows of the greatest parent, then we should definitely not expect a free pass for sin that is far more serious than stealing cookies from a cookie jar. The sins here are very serious. Trampling poor into the dust. Father and son using the same girl. These are serious sins. And Israel thought they could get a free pass. They'd forgotten what kind of parent God was. We should know better. Pagans don't have the knowledge of God that we do. We should know better. But why should we really care that we don't behave like the pagans, that we don't sin against God? Punishment of God? Yes, that's given to us in verses 13 and 16. Through to 16, it talks about the punishment of God, the wrath that will come upon his people and how they will not escape. Yes, that's a good reason to be scared when we sin. But I'll give you an even better reason. Why should we really care? It's because when we sin, God's holy name is profaned. Did you see that there in verse 7? Look with me at verse 7. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They profane his holy name. Remember, the pagans don't claim to belong to God. The Israelites and the people of Judah, they claim to be God's people. And so when they sin, it profanes God's holy name. Some children, despite the best parenting skills that their parents can offer, and they may be excellent parents, some children still turn out like little rotters. And when they go about their lives and they sin greatly, they break all the rules that their parents ever gave them, people look at those little rotters and they say, what kind of home did that child come from? They look at that child and they say, oh, imagine what the parents are like when you see the way that child is living. And it doesn't usually grieve the little rotter that much that he's bringing disgrace upon his parents by his behaviour. But siblings can recognise it. An older sister or brother, as they hear people say, what kind of parents does he have? They go, no, Dad is a good parent. Mum was wonderful. It's my little brother that's to blame. We had a great upbringing. My parents did everything for us and tried to help us and disciplined us in the right way we should go. It's my brother's fault. And people will say, yeah, sure, sure. They look at the behaviour of that child and say, there must be something that the parents missed somewhere along the line. We as the people of God, children of God, should shun sin because we don't want to be the little rotter bringing disgrace upon our Heavenly Father. It shouldn't be about the punishment at the end of the day. It should be about we don't want God's holy name to be profaned. When we know how wonderful he is, we shouldn't want to go out and sin 
so that people start to say bad things about God. If we mistreat the vulnerable in this church, if we deny justice, we do not take an interest in the poor, if sexual immorality is known in this church, it gives pagans a reason to blaspheme the name of God. They can say, oh, the God of Christianity, he isn't good. He isn't just. He isn't holy. Just look at his children. He isn't all-powerful, or otherwise he would have stopped them doing what they're doing. And he isn't all-knowing because, well, if he knew what was going on within his churches, he'd put an end to it. They start to deny one after another of the attributes of God. In fact, the pagans, when they look at the children of God as they sin blatantly in the community, they may start to think that God simply isn't. Not that he isn't holy, that he isn't powerful, that he isn't loving, that he isn't all-knowing. They might just think he isn't. Yeah, they claim to be children of that God, but they're deluded. Look at the way they behave. Their God just doesn't exist. And so keeping ourselves pure should be for the sake of God's holy name. That should be our great desire, that God's name is honoured as we withhold ourselves from sin. Pagans fear fear fire for sin, but we fear disgracing our Heavenly Father's name. And so we must ask ourselves at this church, are we guilty of hypocrisy? Are we quick to judge others? People outside the church, pagans, unbelievers, are we quick to judge them and how they behave, how terrible their lives are, and quick to judge Christians outside the church. Look at those people out there who call themselves Christian. Look at the way they're carrying on. They must never read their Bibles. Are we quick to judge people inside the church, inside our church? But we don't judge ourselves. We cannot leave planks in our own eyes and jump up and down about the specks or maybe planks in the eyes of others. We cannot be guilty of hypocrisy because it brings God's name into disrepute. And that goes for me too. I'm meant to be, as preaching elder at this church, the epitome of holiness. I'm meant to be the most holy person amongst us, aren't I? So if anyone can point the finger, it has to be me. If I'm going to point the finger, I need to look at my own life too and look at the sin that is within. Because at the end of the day, the only one that can really point the finger is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who has been completely holy. Athanasius, um, very famous in the early church for defending the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one, particularly the divinity of Jesus Christ, he said, the truly humble Christian does not inquire into his neighbor's faults. He takes no pleasure in judging them. He is occupied wholly with his own. The truly humble Christian does not inquire into his neighbor's faults. He takes no pleasure in judging them. He is occupied wholly with his own. Is that true? Do you agree with that statement? 
But what about now, as you may be convicted of your hypocrisy, convicted of your sin, convicted of the fact that you brought dishonour upon God's name, what are you to do this morning? Well, we're to do what the pagans are called to do as well, and that is repent. We need to go hastily in repentance to God. Whenever we find sin in our lives, we need to repent. We need to turn quickly to God. And thankfully, God is not a parent who doesn't welcome prodigals. It's amazing truth. We're learning more about the parenthood of God today, what he isn't and what he is. And some parents in this world, when the little rotter comes home, they don't want anything to do with him. That's not the parent that we know from Scripture. He welcomes prodigals with open arms. He runs to them and embraces them. And so I encourage you this morning, if you're feeling convicted this morning by this sermon, of the transgressions that you have committed, like Judah, like Israel had in the past, and hypocrisy you may have even had, repent. Turn from your sin. Say you're sorry to God, even if it's for the first time or the upteenth time. Repent, and you can be a sinner saved by grace. Saved by grace, who is empowered by the Holy Spirit to live rightly. Not like the people of God here in Amos, but to live rightly. And if you do that, did you know you actually bring honour to God's name, which is what we're all about, remember? Our sin profanes the name of God. But when we repent of our sin... It actually honours God's name. Now, people outside the world may not always get it, but we understand that when we repent and God welcomes us back, it honours his name because it shows his grace, his mercy, his love, his kindness, his compassion. And we boast not in our own works, we boast in the work of Christ in paying for our sins at the cross. And so his name is honoured. He is held up as a gracious parent, a loving parent, a compassionate parent, a merciful parent, because he welcomes those who turn from sin. Let's come to God in prayer. Let's speak with him. Heavenly Father, we must all confess in this room that we are guilty of hypocrisy. There are many times we've sinned against you and brought disgrace on your name and then accused others. We've had the audacity to point the finger at others for their sin. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would forgive us through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to turn from sin and to live for your glory, to live according to your ways, to not forget your decrees, but to act upon them. And so, Lord, we pray that we would bring honour to your name rather than profane your holy name. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.